Welcome to this episode of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Fran Palaro, Senior Editor of Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine and your podcast host. The Farm Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights to master the science of success. On this week's episode, I speak with Mohit Manrao, the SVP and Head of U.S. Oncology at AstraZeneca. We discuss Mohit's journey in the pharmaceutical industry, key strategies used to potentially transform the oncology landscape at AstraZeneca, the role of patient perspective from discovery to commercialization, the impact of AI, data science, and digital technologies on patient care, future predictions for significant developments in cancer care over the next 5-10 years, and then of course some takeaways and impacts from the recent ASCO meeting on oncology research and AstraZeneca's strategic focus. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with the interview. Hey there, Andy Studnett, co-host of the Applied Clinical Trials podcast here. Check out brand new episodes of the ACT podcast every two weeks on Tuesdays at 10. And you can find past episodes plus much more by logging on at AppliedClinicalTrials.com. Hello, listeners. I'm here with Mohit Manrao. Thank you for joining me today. So Mohit, can you tell us a little bit about your background and experience in the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, thank you, Fran. Thank you for having me. As I get to my background in pharmaceutical industry, just starting a little bit further back, I, I was born and brought up in the northern part of India. And actually, I always wanted to be a doctor uh, as I was growing up because uh, we, I come from a uh, family of engineers, but I had an uncle who, ha- who was a doctor and who used to run a hospital. And uh, how he cared about patients and how he you know, supported them was always very uh, interesting for me when I saw that saw him do that service. Every summer break, I went uh, went to see him. So I always wanted to be one, but as I grew up, uh, you know, I decided to be an engineer, took that route, and one thing led to another. But as uh, as I got my second opportunity to go back to school, as I was doing my MBA, AstraZeneca came in, and I thought, oh, that's a great opportunity for me to get back to what I wanted to do, uh, maybe not uh, being closer to being a doctor, but as close as I can get to in serving patients through medicines. And that's that was one thing. But the other thing also was very uh, interesting. AstraZeneca was focused on developing leaders and developing global leaders, having, having experiences in different parts of the world in different functions. And those two things really appealed to me uh, to really actually come into pharma. And then since then, I, have, uh, I started working with AstraZeneca in Japan, uh, in, in oncology, primarily there. Uh, and from there, I went into UK and Europe, uh, worked on our products there, as well as uh, headed the business. And then it also gave me an opportunity to get into global uh, lung cancer uh, franchise management, and where I had an opportunity to get into the upper value stream of R&D and look at the different life cycle, uh, which has brought me here in the US, uh, where actually me and my team are really dedicated in bringing the science and innovation that we see time and again coming to conferences uh, and changing practice, changing practice at every zip code level. So it's 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 been an exciting journey, but something which I feel is very rewarding as we think of uh, solving for cancer care gaps. It's really interesting that you uh, your your youth actually led back to healthcare somehow. You found the right path, and here you are. Yeah, sometimes sometimes you don't know why why things happen and where they crisscross, but. Uh, truly, this is uh, this is something. And having lived in Japan, um, I, I I embraced a lot of concepts there, which is another concept of ikigai, 
which talks about when what you do, what you get paid for, what the world needs and what you're good at come together. It becomes your purpose of being. Uh, and I feel like being in AstraZeneca in oncology at this point in time, serving the patients, I found my purpose of being and, and it really drives me. So beautiful. Nice little bit of philosophy there too. So in your role as SVP, head of US oncology, what were the key strategies you used to drive commercial success that potentially transformed the oncology landscape? We are in the business of health uh, and healthcare. From that perspective, we, we are really looking at transformative ways of uh, revolutionizing oncology. And here at AstraZeneca, our bold mission is to support in ultimately eliminating cancer as a cause of death, uh, which is bold and, and maybe an evergreen one, but this is something we are constantly moving steps closer towards in bringing to reality for patients. And where my team really gets energized and, and focused is how do we take uh, the science that is coming so fast and ensure that it is really changing practice and ground? Because time and again, we go to, uh, go to big meetings and conferences and latest science comes through. Our strategy there is how do we bring it to every zip code? And our teams are focused on taking that innovation. And I can I can, I can talk about how AstraZeneca is focused on innovation, but that pharmaceutical intervention to every, uh, every patient by really ensuring the pathways optimized. So we are really focused on helping support drive screening where possible, uh, ensuring that the time to diagnosis and the right diagnosis for patients happen to be put on right treatments. From a treatment perspective, our teams are really focused on educating physicians and bringing them up to speed with guidelines and practices and solving for barriers of access and affordability so that the right patients can get there. And, and as, as the right patients get the right medicines in supporting continuity of those to deliver the outcomes we need. So there's, there's a lot uh, within that. And I think uh, the concept is simple that we need to ensure that we are truly moving drugs from uh, bench to bedside, as they call in, in, the, in the pharmaceutical industry, to really have ensuring the patients have uh, an outcome impact based on those. Yeah, that's nice. I really, I really like the part about, you know, early detection and, of course, reaching every zip code. It's super important to have every care extended to every, everybody in this country and, and ultimately the world, right? But it's apparent that there's a focus on the patient perspective, which, which makes me giddy. So how are you aiming to further embed the patient perspective into AstraZeneca's work at all stages from early discovery all the way to commercialization? So patient perspective uh, and healthcare and sustainability are all interlinked. Bear with me. So uh, AstraZeneca is really focused on ensuring sustainability is at the core of everything we do. And within that, we talk about it, sustainability for us is ensuring healthy people, healthy planet, and healthy society. And healthy planet, uh, sorry, healthy people is, is all about uh, ensuring health equity. So how, how we are building that in is, to your point, the patient perspective, really understanding, first and foremost, the core needs of patients, the unmet needs not only from uh, you know cancer outcome perspective, but how do they get care? What kind of challenges they have in today's treatments available? How, how do we need to solve for those? Into our early, early discovery and science, as we look at uncovering more treatment options and uncovering the right treatment options for patients, but also developing them. So in the, within the clinical trial, already starting to think about diverse clinical populations so that we are addressing those and having the patient perspective in different community uh, settings included. At the same time, thinking of where do they get their care? How do they get, get their care? How, how this will affect their day-to-day -day life in terms of the side effect profile management? 
but then also from a delivery perspective, really truly thinking of not just a medicine pathway, where is medicine used, but actually reversing it to thinking of where does a patient experience the challenges across. So as I talked earlier about, uh, there are challenges in screening. So we, we talk about mammography and that how breast cancer has been transformed, but there are 30% of women in, in certain communities who do not even have access to screening or do not get screened. Right. So that is a patient perspective. So and even though we could say, oh, we are not a screening company, but if we think of we want to transform breast cancer care, our teams are focused on how do we solve for ensuring access to screening education and all the barriers that come in between for those are solved. Similarly, diagnosis, right, taking the patient lens. There are a lot of uh, diagnostics which are invasive in nature with biopsies, but then you understand the challenges of patients going through that, but also many patients who can't go through that and developing solutions which are like blood-based screening or blood-based diagnostic, which are non-invasive, which could help AI-based support, which could help patients overcome some of the barriers and, and bring their interests in, into it. And same on treatment side. So there are multiple aspects of bringing that in, but it doesn't happen by pausing and saying, oh, what do patients want? It is truly trying to live in their, in their world and understanding, listening to them, bringing them along the journey into you know, patient advisory boards or patient days that we have to listening to what the patients really want across and helping that bridge across our discovery to late development to commercialization approaches. And you mentioned AI there, there quickly. So from a commercial perspective, how do you see advances in AI, data science, and digi digital technologies impacting how pharmaceutical companies anticipate and address the needs of patients and customers? And then how have you seen this evolve at AstraZeneca specifically? And if you could share a few examples, that'd be great. This is a topic which is very close to my heart because I believe uh, technology can help leapfrog many many gaps in care because uh, many disparities in care that exist, right? Because of infrastructure challenges, education challenges, uh, as well as developmental country challenges that exist around the world. Secondly, I think we are at a point where data, technology, and science, the way they are coming together, uh, the opportunities uh, of, of transforming healthcare are exponential. And that's, we have seen through COVID how technologies have helped continue care or, or overcome challenges that came through uh, because just overnight we moved to new technologies that help take care of patients and not having them be left around. Uh, so, uh, and in terms of AI examples you talked about, let me, let me share a little bit of a story on, you know, uh, which was an aha moment for me. We were, so when I was in my previous role as head of lung cancer globally, we were working collaboratively with uh, different stakeholders on what we call, call a lung ambition alliance on where we wanted to transform the five-year overall survivor for lung cancer. And what we said is there are, there are three big parts to do that. All, if you can drive early lung cancer screening, you, you know, even without new science and new innovation, you can actually move the outcomes for patients. And then there were two other parts. But within that, then it was very easy to say lung cancer screening has shown to have mortality impact. Let's get it rolled out. Let's have it in national cancer plans. Like US, we have it approved for so many years, but the uptake is still at 6% of the population, right? It is shocking to assume that even with access availability and, and reimbursement, that is the uptake. So that shows that there's so many challenges that exist. But when we were having this discussion with some colleagues from Asia and WHO, you realize the challenges that some of the countries don't even have 
uh, infrastructure as CT, CT scanners to do that. So forget about screening. They don't even have the tools that are needed. But that's where beauty of technology comes in because long time back and x-rays were tested for screening and people said, oh, you can't read an x-ray and, and detect lung cancer. But now the age is different. Yes, CT scans do better job, but if you combine x-rays and AI, you could actually, you don't need a CT scan, or you may still need a CT scan, but you could actually uncover much more and enrich the population who may need a follow-up with a CT scan or something else. Uh, and this is where we, we unlocked uh, the potential of a power of AI and did collaboration with a few companies. One of them is Cure AI, where we went into Vietnam, Malaysia, and many other countries. And at, at this point, we are scanning half a million x-rays to really look at look at how uh, you know, lung nodules are found earlier that could actually be then enriched and screened for lung cancer. And those countries still do not have CT scanners uh, to a capacity that is needed to have a national program. So that's an example of, you know, in a developing world, how AI and machine, uh, AI machine learning and technology can help leapfrog uh, from that angle. But similarly, in um, another example in New York, uh, we, we went, went, went to seven centers. We looked at I think around 6 uh, million patients and 60 million EMR health records uh, in, with a natural language processing algorithm in two weeks to pick up 2,000 documented in paper uh, nodules or, or lung, lung malignancies that needs to be followed up, but not followed up. And because it was just documented in there, there was no way. So now again, you see the power of technology to do that so quickly to transform care. There's so many examples, similarly on diagnostics, similarly on, we are, we are testing now, uh, uh, now a tool for uh, interstitial lung disease, ILD management, which, is, which will help at least 80 days before you actually see symptoms to be able to tell you that the patient may have, uh, you know, uh, may have an ILD uh, risk so that we can earlier intervene and they don't have disruption. So, the opportunities are endless. And I think there's so many small pilots and use cases happening around the patient care pathway, which makes me quite uh, optimistic that we are at the cusp of revolutionizing cancer care and really moving further towards really ensuring that, you know, uh, at, at one point uh, we will see uh, cancer no longer being a, a killer, but uh, potentially a chronic disease or something we can eliminate as a cause of death. Yeah, that that ability to to scan huge sets of data and and come up with answers very quickly is just, you know, it's just the coolest thing about this. You know, there's there's so much data out there that pharma companies have, and just digging into that as a start, you're gonna you're gonna be saving lives, right? Yeah, and Fran, it's it's exciting because that's in the commercial space today where practice is changing and we can really transform things, but. You know, you know, in pharma, it takes ages to come to the right drugs with the right target and then develop them. But again, AI at discovery stage, what used to take months and months to uh, filter through on your target molecules can now happen in days and, and potentially even future in hours. So the way you would move science with more precision and more targeting, but also efficient discovery I think it's it's amazing to think of what we could be uh, in 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 by the end of this decade, where we could be for patients, but also from science uh, all the way from development to commercialization and also you know manufacturing. So it's 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 really an exciting world where data science and technology are coming together and rewriting uh, many things uh, as it relates to the traditional approaches we have had. Looking ahead, what do you think are the will be the most significant developments in cancer care over the next five to ten years? 
And how do you see the future of oncology care playing out? I think there will be multiple themes. So first and foremost, uh, I I mean, I will not touch on this much because this is everybody's in pharmaceuticals, bread and butter in really having the new mode of actions and modalities, whether it is, uh, you know, uh, cell therapy, gene therapy, vaccines, right? Uh, ADCs, combinations of those coming together. So that is something which is absolutely exciting and would be the future. And again, uh, at AstraZeneca, we are focused on two key areas within that, which is all modalities that help kill cancer cells directly and all modalities that help actually harness the power of the immune system. And we are building a portfolio around those two with the beauty of now we're starting to combine those and drive deeper durable responses. And I think that's one big trend you will see in the, in the, in the, in the oncology landscape that will move the needle. The other one which we just touched upon is the use of AI, machine learning, data analytics that is going to speed up how we discover medicines, but also how we develop medicines and how quickly we bring them and commercialize in the field. Uh, so that's, that's another big uh, area. The third one I would say is it would be screening would really, really transform. And that's important also from you know, revolutionizing cancer care, because just imagine today in diabetes, like we all go for our regular checkups and a blood test happens and it will tell you your HbA1c level is not in control, Fran, you need to go see a doctor or you need to work on your, you know, preventive things like exercise, et cetera, or get interventions, right? It doesn't happen in cancer much often, only in a few places, but in, in, in a matter of years, hopefully, everybody will be going for a 10 mil blood draw annually at the regular checkup, which will tell them not only the risk of cancer, but very quickly say if you have cancer and which kind of cancer to potentially say whether you need an intervention or not, right, uh, at that point in time. I think that will be transformative uh, for the society where today it's like a, nobody wants to talk about this word and there's a sometimes a nihilism or a, associated with it to a place where this is something that we do our regular health checkups around and we constantly monitor and, and the monitoring is not that invasive and it's not that scary and the treatments are available. So early screening uh, would be the third one. And the last, I think, uh, again, something which is very close to my heart is around health equity. And I have seen time and again living in different countries with different healthcare systems and different access situations that I kind of pause and think it's not, it's many times it's not cancer that, that gets in the way of patients living longer. It's sometimes the system barriers, right? To a point where, um, again, I'll, I'll tell you a story of a, of a patient whom I work closely with uh, and, and she, she, she passed away a couple of years back, but she used to live in a postcode where the doctor refused to give her a biopsy because she said, oh, you should get on a chemo. I don't think you are fit to get a biopsy. And you've got six months to get your affairs in order. It was a lung cancer. And she refused. Uh, and she went 100 miles to get a biopsy because of which she identified a specific mutation, got on a specific drug, lived for two years on that. When she progressed, she went back for another biopsy, got four more years on another drug. Now, this is six years of a good life versus two, six months on chemotherapy and said to get affairs in order. And she was a proponent that my postcode lottery suggested that I had six months, but I defied it. And, and I, I have since then really, the word she coined for me was postcode lottery. And I think that's the fourth theme that health equity would be front and center for the next decade to uh, revolutionize cancer care landscape by really focusing on solving for disparities in care so that if 
if Fran lives with a certain in a certain zip code and I live in a certain zip code, why should we have a different uh, you know opportunity from a health healthcare outcome perspective? And there is system, there is access, there is uh, there are so many things to solve for it, socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera. So I think th that fourth key area would be health equity uh, for me from a, you know what's going to be happening in the next decade in oncology space. Yeah, and you actually mentioned a person that wasn't crushed by a six-month diagnosis. Instead, she was, a, she was a fighter. I'm gonna go 100 miles. That six-month diagnosis would crush a lot of people and they would just stay still and you know pretty much die and probably have a pretty terrible six months. So- She's an incredible person. And on top of that, it just shows the need for reaching out to, to more people in these in these zip codes. She also mobilized and started a patient group that didn't exist in the UK, but there was a similar group in the US. She connected with them. She then had, you know, over the two years, got 80 members. She, she, she was a force there. And to me, disparities exist everywhere for every individual, right? It is important for us to truly start addressing that. And, and, and there is a lot of momentum and motion, you know, progress towards that, but there's a lot to walk on that, uh, on that side of um, the, the, fourth, the fourth theme I talked about. So again, um, I think it takes not just one, takes many, uh, like no, no, no individual, no single government, no single company, no single association can solve for this. We all got to come together uh, in, in solving for these things. You mentioned um, AI, I believe is the third one, AI and commercialization. Can you give me a few examples of what you see happening in that sense? As I think of AI today, if you think of US itself, 85% of patients are treated in community practice, right? And community practice, it's a double-edged sword. It's in one case, an oncologist who has, who can, who understands many tumors and many areas and can treat many patients. Uh, but at the same time, the science is moving so fast. There's so many developments. It's difficult for one individual to keep pace with so much, right? And then the practice is changing very, very frequently. And this is where I think there's another area where how do we bring guideline concordance care at scale in every community? Because sometimes that community oncologist may see one specific kind of a precision uh, identified patient in a year, right? Uh, and when he's he or she is seeing hundreds of others and then finding that one patient a year and giving them the right specific diagnos uh, diagnostic test to get to the right treatment becomes a challenge. It's about mind space, right? That's where uh, AI-based algorithm, that's where a technology-based solution that looks at patient records in their system, in their EPIC or EMR system and says, Dr. Fran, you should be treating this patient uh, or you should be at least ordering these three tests. And if the outcomes are these, these are the potential guideline-based treatment options. And by the way, the last 10 patients that you put on this in your healthcare system, these are their outcomes today for those. So helping a physician make the right choices in a better, in a, in a supportive way, in a fast-moving, ever-evolving science is, is something that absolutely is in the next next few years, uh, you know, is going to start happening at scale that would be very helpful. And I think that's that's one example over and, uh, over and above the screening examples I talked about and some of the commercialization examples that I talked about from a diagnostic space. Yeah, that's like having an incredibly up-to-date and intelligent assistant right at your side. <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you see there's a lot of noise on chat GPT on what it can do. Like, of course, there are there, there has to be in medical world guardrails around it. So I think thinking about from a patient perspective, it has to align with guidance and concordance and not go vague that you search on Google and you get what 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 it should be. 
but it has to be controlled. And I think that that's something, an area of work to happen over the next uh, few years. So recently you, uh, you went to ASCO, the ASCO meeting. This event is certainly known for bringing together some of the brightest minds in oncology to share the latest findings and perspectives. Could you share some of the most impactful insights or prevalent themes that resonated with you from this year's conference? And how do you see these themes influencing the future direction of oncology research? and the strategic commercial focus at AstraZeneca. To the themes I talked about earlier, like the four, the four themes that I talked about going, going in the future, I saw all, them, all of them come to life at ASCO in one way, shape, form, or the other. Let's start with uh, kind of modalities, new modalities coming in and driving patient outcomes better. I mean, we ourselves had data on our TKIs, which again is is a, is a known mo modality, uh, but come, overcomes tumor driver resistance. And we had our data on at ASCO at a plenary, which was our fifth consecutive plenary in a row, where we showed that a TKI would now drive survival outcome benefit in, in adjuvant lung cancer space. This is the first time. So again, it brings hope of uh, if you detect cancer early and you treat that with the right therapy, right, with a precision-based approach, precision diagnostic-based approach, you are transforming care. You are making that five-year survival possible with 88% of the patients alive at five-year with that therapy in lung cancer for a specific type of lung cancer is a great news. So I saw that in action, that new modality. Similarly, we had ADC data uh, of ours, which showed uh, NHER2, our ADC. That was really showing for HER2 expressing tumors in multiple tumor settings that we could actually drive deeper responses in late line setting and long duration of response for patients who do not have any other option left, which is again exciting because these tumor types don't have a HER2 today being uh, targeted or having a treatment for that. So here's, here's ADCs, again, the new technology coming in. We saw in multiple myeloma cures being possible through you know, some of the other companies' presentations that came through, which is again hope. So the first part, which I talked about new modalities and how they'll transform. I think we saw at ASCO. The second one, again, on screening, there were multiple things that were showcased there. One thing which was given my work in lung cancer, which was, which struck a chord with me was around, uh, you know, lung cancer screening today is done for patients who have a smoking history and age-related, so 50 plus and with that, this many smoking packs. But there are so many non-smokers who also get lung cancer. Lung cancer is not just a smoking smoker's disease. And this is something which we have to deal with the stigma and the nihilism associated with it. And there was a study, uh, again, from New York, uh, which showed uh, in Asian females who had no smoking history or smoking or non-smoking history, um, actually, but had a family background or Asian uh, descent, there was equivalent, if they were screened, there was an equivalent detection rate, like same as those with the smoking population, which is opening up screening risk-based screening to even broader population. It was, again, interesting. And I think there's more progress that will happen on screening front. Uh, again, there were data AI-based discussions that happened a lot in that space, and health equity was a big theme. But to me, I think every ASCO I go to, I come back, or every, every Congress now, not only ASCO, every three months, something or the other, you go to, you come back very energized on the hope that exists for patient and that revolution that I and we talk about within AZ on revolutionizing cancer care, that it's getting within reach. Uh, we are seeing transformation. We are seeing bending of those survival curves. We are seeing the word cure being talked about. We are seeing new modalities coming to life. We're seeing progress on screening and uh, health equities. I feel like those were 
themes that again resonated with me at ASCO this year. If there is one lesson you learned earlier in your career, what would it be? Like it's it's never too late to learn, uh, never too late to learn. And I constantly learn. And one of, I'll share multiple things with you, multiple lessons I have learned over the years that I, and I still continue to learn. I, very early in my career, somebody told me the KPI, as we call in business, key performance indicator for a leader is how many better than you leaders that you create over time. It was a moment of pause for me because this came from someone who is really well respected as a leader. And he said, I measure myself not through what I am doing uh, in terms of outcomes today, but actually how many leaders I'm creating for the future. And that has stuck with me. And everywhere I've been to, I've been fortunate to work with great people. But I always ask myself, like, you know, as I build my teams, how, how I can help them to be the future leaders, how I can enable them from that perspective. And another thing, and you talked about traveling around the world, and I have many times taken, or most of the times been fortunate enough to have faith uh, from the organization to put me in roles where actually I'm learning new things, right? So from that perspective, uh, the other lesson which late R&D had, Jose Bazelga, whom many of, uh, many of you on this podcast, wearing this podcast would know as, as the leading breast cancer uh, oncologist who transformed that space, uh, said to me when I was taking my global role in R&D and I, I, and I was going to get involved in R&D development work with my counterparts. And I said to him, I don't know about that space. And he said to me, you don't know, need to be the smartest person in the room because you will have very smart people around. You need to know how to ask the right questions. And when you ask the right questions, you make a much stronger team because you're able to bring everybody and unleash their potential to the max. And that's something that has, again, stuck with me on, like every time I've, and I look back, every time I've taken, I've never worked in Japan, I'd never had worked in pharmas, never had worked in oncology when I launched the first drug, same for UK, Europe, and US. It's all about really leaning in on your expertise of your team and the, and, and the table you, diverse table you create, and then really asking the right questions to each other and empowering teams to think big. Uh, and be visionary. And I think that has also helped me as a lesson that it's not about being the smartest. It's about asking the right questions. But there's an important thing that goes hand in hand with it, which Jose had said, uh, was let the best argument win, right? You may have a view, you may have a stance, and you you should stick to it and debate about it. But if you feel like, oh, there's a better argument, switch. Don't be, don't, don't, don't even pause for a second. So, and there's so many lessons, but these, these few lessons do come to life because they've either reinforced or reshaped the way I work with my teams and I work on myself. Those are great lessons. And, and humility is certainly a big one. I, I'm an admirer of this Jose character. So um, really appreciate having you on. It's been, a, it's been a great discussion. Thank you for having me, Fran. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Farm Exec Podcast, where we take you behind the headlines to provide expert tips from industry leaders. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter, at farmexec, on Instagram, at farmexecutive, and on YouTube, Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of Farmexec, its parent company, or advertisers. For editorial questions or to get in touch with the editors, please email us at farmexec at mjhlifesciences.com. For sponsorship opportunities, please go to farmexec.com backslash advertise. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.